Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, some of many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts, and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gilded Age Education. The Gilded Age was an era of massive expansion, geographically, demographically, and socially. And nowhere was this felt more than in the expansion of schools across the nation, with education itself becoming mandatory pretty much everywhere. How did this happen? Who were the movers of shaker, who were the movers and shakers of education in this time? What vision or visions did they espouse? And who resisted or opposed them? With me here to answer at least some of these questions today is Kerry Ellard, an independent historian. Kerry, welcome. Hi, um, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm excited to talk more about this. Uh, The Gilded Age is a very interesting time when it comes to education um, because, uh, you know, after the Civil War, uh, you finally had the idea that there could be a, a national identity, a national plan. Um, so you had a lot more uh, experimentation, a lot more it seemed feasible. Um, people started to really think of things in a, um, a broader, um, uh, more standardized way and explore education systems. Um, and before the war, there had been, um, most of the public school systems were confined to cities in the, the Northeast. Um, so th- there was a attempt now to expand um, for different reasons. Uh, you had both, um, uh, uh, particularly New Englanders, wanted to replicate uh, their school model in the South, um, both to help um, assist uh, freedmen and their, their children, um, and to uh, help, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, unify the country, um, try and spread their values to, to Southerners as part of it. Um, and th- then you also had, um, as the middle class grew in the cities, particularly in the, the north and west, um, there was this uh, high school model started to arise. Um, uh, and, and also immigration played a role in that. Um, having somewhere for all these children to go as the uh, country started to move away from agrarianism and things like that. Um, so there was just a lot going on during this, this time period, but it was, it was not very um, standardized yet. It was very regional. Okay, that's, uh, that's a great uh, segue into the question I am asking pretty much uh, every uh, guest, I, almost every guest I have on this program is, let's imagine an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville comes to visit the country at the end of the Civil War, uh, sometime in the middle of the Gilded Age, say the 1880s, the 1890s, uh, and by 1920 when this period comes to an end. What would they find throughout the country? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? 
Um, so yeah, uh, from 1865 to um, uh, the 1880s, so that's the Gilded Age time when things are more disorganized. Um, you start to see the beginnings of a lot of uh, experiments, but the main change that happened during this time was in the universities, um, where you started to move more towards a, um, a European model of, of university, and they started to um, really proliferate. Um, and uh, you got more um, specialization, um, professionalization, um, concentration of, of power. It started to be almost like uh, you had like the professional class becoming kind of class conscious um, and, and shifting into a more modern, you know, recognizable U.S. because of that. Um, before the Civil War, uh, the universities tended, I mean, they started out in America to train ministers mostly. And while they had modernized somewhat, um, they were still, they were very different in their, um, in their focus than European universities. Uh, they were not technical. They focused a lot on, um, uh, I guess you could say more the humanities and training people more generally. Um, and so that started to, started to shift a lot and, and change the culture. Um, once you had that change, um, the people in the universities um, had kind of they started theorizing about how to extend um, some of these procedures to other types of education, and they had built the uh, infrastructure and the resources to, to start acting on that. Um, so between those two things, you start to see around 1880, you move into the progressive era um, where uh, several things had happened. I mean, Reconstruction had ended. Um, so you get more of um, a national politics, um, industrialization is picking up, um, urbanization is picking up. Um, and so from there, there you start to get a lot more efforts to build um, systems and you get um, the public school system spreading throughout the country in some form. Um, you get universities expanding even further and getting more influence. Um, and uh, it just the, the entire system would look completely different. I mean, after the war, almost every decade looks completely different than the one before it. Um, but particularly between 1880 and 1920, it's kind of, it's a different world. Um, you know, just so much happened within that that era. Um, but uh, it really modernized. The U.S. really modernized during that time. So it became much more. Um, much more national, much more into uh, science, um, much more professionalized, concentrated power, concentrated media. Everybody started working for employers rather than being farmers or, or self-employed. Um, and you had World War One, uh, so there was just there was just a lot going on, and it was a much more structured, organized, modern society by the time the Progressive Era ended in 1920. Interesting. Uh, let me follow follow that up, though. So you say that, especially the latter part of this period is when things really started to pick up, and you say it's more nationalized, more concentrated. So were there, for lack of a better term, educa uh, teacher factories where, like everybody went to uh, everybody went to study, and everybody had a regularly uniform curriculum, and they went out as kind of missionaries of modernity in American nationalism, uh, or was it more complicated than that? Um, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, I mean, it was obviously somewhat more complicated than that. But yeah, you started to get this at the basically the 1890s, early 1900s, you get a few of the, um, the, the normal schools, the teacher colleges, which was, this was based on um, uh, like France and Germany's model that was at the time um, just considered, uh, particularly Germany's, but uh, France and Germany just were considered to have this 
excellent education model because it was very um, very organized, very legible, um, and and the, the universities were very good, especially technical specialties. Um, and there was kind of this, this there's almost a failure to understand like people couldn't separate the university levels were very high, um, were, were very respectable, but they didn't educate most of their population. And I mean, you know, many of these people, many of the children didn't get any education or they were tracked out very early. So it was a very uneven system. But the legibility appealed to people and it was considered the way of the future and something that could be somehow extended to everyone in the U.S. system, which was an ongoing pattern. I mean, even Horace Mann would cut, would, and others would go over to Europe in the 1840s and say, well, we're not going to make a system that does what theirs does, but we're going to use the structure and use it to create Republican citizens. Um, it just was felt that that could be done. You could you could just change the function of the system. And so Horace Mann had actually set up a normal school or several of them in Massachusetts in the 1840s and 50s, but that had been a relatively rare thing. Only a few cities that have reformers like that who were very dedicated and, and resources for it um, had moved forward with that. But there'd been hope of, of uh, expanding that model. And so you finally see that really taking off in the, um, in the 1890s and you get um, Columbia's Teachers College, you get a number of normal schools um, that at that time they really were um, really kind of put uh, yeah, putting out missionaries, um, training them in according to very specific um, ways of doing things. I mean, it was, it's it wasn't a very specific curriculum exactly, but it was a specific attitude um, because the progressive era. You just had so many the, the type of person who went to these uh, normal schools really believed that the future was going to be different. It was going to be um, you know all about progress and industry and science, and that we were on the cusp of discovering all these new things that would everything would make sense and we'd know how to handle everything and plan it. So it was just kind of that that peak optimism about that, and so that attitude. They were all preparing to take advantage of this change when it happened. Um, and so they built all the structures during this period. It's harder to say how much influence they had substantively. You know, they built the bureaucracies, they certainly made changes, but content matter-wise, a lot of it either never really became realistic or it just became irrelevant. It, the, the world didn't work out, I guess, as they, as they planned really. Um, that's kind of what makes progressive education sometimes difficult to discuss in a historical sense. So you mentioned how they were all big on uh, science and progress and technology and so on and so forth. But as you note also, they wanted to make Republican citizens. And at the end of the day, you need to have some sort of a standard or a model for what counts as a Republican citizen and a national American. And what were the models, if you will, even if, with loose boundaries that these idealists and uh, and and missionaries uh, and thinkers had uh, for America's students. Uh, that's a great question. That's really kind of the uh, the key point I think for understanding this era is they they had trouble um, uh, coming up with a standard. I mean, obviously there were many people involved, and so some of them had better plans than others, and there was a lot of diversity there. But previous to the progressive era, the standard had been simple enough. I mean, in the places that had school systems that were developed, um, and this was becoming a responsible community member who understood and valued um, the Republican government and institutions and, and U.S. history and how it differed from uh, European governments. And there was usually a strong New England um, 
bent to that because that's where those school moms were coming from and um, for various reasons. And, you know, it was based on uh, those responsibilities and, and respecting others. And as um, with, with man, he was re responding to um, a lot of immigration. And so then it became more about, um, I mean, it was still that model, but it was more about let's get all the students together so that they're familiar with each other. They have cultural touchstones and they um, can respect each other as fellow citizens, as adults, by studying the founding documents, certain uh, literature that we see as, um, you know, relevant, um, defending Republican values. Um, and it, it was very, it was very, um, it was based on books and, and basic skills and reading and recitation and, and just kind of inculcating those values um, that were very New England influenced. Um, and then as uh, in that model, they tried to extend it also after the Civil War. Um, it, the idea was, you know, Southerners, Northerners, um, pe people of all races will go to school together as children and they will learn to respect each other and that will get us past any of these divides and they will be responsible citizens and continue the Republic. With the progressive era, you did have people who absolutely still continued to cling to that vision and um, tried to adapt different methods um, to it. But you also had pe many people who, to varying degrees, thought that that was just obsolete. Whether they liked it or not, they just believed that the modern world didn't allow for that anymore um, and that they needed to prepare for some sort of replacement system. But that conversation was never really had explicitly because that was kind of an unpopular thing to, just to bring up. Um, so they kind of danced around it and, and that's part of why it, it didn't cohere very well. But usually what they would do is, set, is they would still talk about making Republican citizens, but they would just um, kind of talk about how a Republican citizen was someone who was useful to the community and, and uh, participated and got along well. And that could mean like anything from being, a, you know, having a job um, to being a leader and, um, you know, fighting for freedom. Um, it really was all over the place. And that made it difficult um, for them to to talk about exactly how their education served it. Um, you can see this in the model of somebody like John Dewey, who he seems very vague and paradoxical at times. What he was trying to get at was, the, at least in my opinion, is the point of school was to get kids in the habit of thinking responsibly and being able to make choices that an autonomous you know, citizen would have, a member of a self-governing community, a democratic community, where everyone had a role and respected each other. Um, it, he was trying to get them to think actively, to have respect for themselves and others, and not to get stuck in any particular tracking or rigid form of thinking, because he felt that to um, create Republican citizens in the modern age, you had to be able to adapt to industrialization and the concentration of power. And he felt that the skills that were needed were either different or they needed to be attained in a different way to be effective, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, although it, it really sounds to me like uh, the, the progressive reformers in this particular era sounded extremely uh, overambitious. Uh, even today, people are talking about how we're not teaching people enough of this, or we're not teaching people enough of that, or we're teaching people this thing the wrong way. And it honestly, I honestly wonder if it harks back to this idea that we expect just an absolutely enormous amount of, of from schools. So. But bring, go, going back to your uh, mention of people who stuck to the old ways, I, I honestly think about it because I know that there was resistance for various reasons to this sort of uh, New England educational missionizing in the South for, ver for 
different reasons. In some cases, because they didn't want black Americans to be educated. In some cases, because black Americans worked hard enough and they didn't really feel school contributed much. Uh, how, how exactly did your average ordinary American uh, living in the Midwest, uh, whether on the farm or in the city uh, or out west, uh, respond or react to uh, to these people uh, to these people coming to, I guess, save them or prepare them for the modern world. Um, so yeah, that's a, a great uh, question. Um, it's it's complicated, but it worked better than you would think. In part because, I mean, the people most resistant resistant to the New England tradition were generally um, white Southerners, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and they weren't really in the school system that much unless they wanted to be there um, until, I mean, honestly, what probably in significantly into the 20th century before you had real school attendance out in the out in many of those places. Um, and the New England tradition did survive. I mean, it still survives to some extent. You know, in most other places, it really did take off. Um, it, it, people who had moved out west from the beginning, the pioneers, they usually took New England books with them. And, you know, it was that Yankee culture was the Midwest and the, the West for the most part. Um, so even if they were self-educating, um, that they were getting their, their material and their values um, a large extent from the, the Yankee culture, um, not just the educational culture, but just more broadly. Um, they were the ones who were really obsessed with making these schools. So it just tended to, it was like self-selecting to some extent. Um, and you, you still see it. I mean, I listened to the episode with Samuel Goldman and he made some point of, about how um, the citizenship standard was kind of like, if you want to, um, the, the, the WASP you know, crowd would say, I think even in the early 1900s, well, as long as you read Emerson and Thoreau, you know, it's fine if you're Italian or Catholic or whatever. That was kind of how it was um, to some extent. It was like, just read our, our literature and our values. And if you show um, respect for that, if you immerse yourself in it, that was that was the basis of their their whole value system and i mean in my opinion is a pretty attractive value system to, to to most people so it wasn't um it wasn't difficult to get people to i think adopt that for the most part and that was true at least into the 1920s that like i've looked at um um you know uh, immigration um uh, direct, uh, what do you call it, um, advice to um, how to deal with uh, immigrations, uh, immigrants who are getting citizenship. So, and the citizenship guide says that they should create uh, create book clubs and get a library card and practice self-government and read about Lincoln and how he saved the nation from slavery. And that was really the dominant cultural narrative for a long time because, I mean, obviously the North being victorious in the Civil War, it could, it could control that. It had the resources and it had the claim to national culture. So um, it was fairly successful um, without getting too much resistance because people just accepted that was the way it, it was, and especially those who were most eager to be part of the the, the culture. Um, and that really didn't change until well into the, the 20th century. Um, but it, it did, it was somewhat awkward. It did make things culturally uneven. And there was, you know, some people resented, I, I think, the the assimilation, but at the same time, it was fairly successful and it didn't have to be extremely aggressive. It just kind of uh, was what it was. Interesting. If I may push back a bit on that uh, narrative, though, uh, my previous episode with Professor James Patterson about American Catholicism talked about how, at the very least, uh, Catholic Church leaders uh, kind of deeply resented 
uh, what were known as the Blaine Amendments, which basically forced, uh, not only forced kids to go to school, but forced kids to only be able to go to taxpayer-funded institutions that taught, uh, I guess, a very light or liberal form of Protestantism, uh, or some people accused them of causing uh, kids to learn Nothingarianism. And he said that Catholic, kids who re Catholic parents who really wanted their kids to have a Catholic education basically had to pay taxes for a school their kid didn't go to, and then, pay, and then somehow pay tuition for a school their kid did go to. So it, was there really, su there clearly was such pushback to the point that there was even a Supreme Court case uh, known as the Little Sisters case where they, uh, where they had to fight for the right of such schools to exist. So it sounds like there was, there was clearly persuasion involved in this campaign, but there was also a lot of legal coercion. Uh, yes, that is true. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to articulate that. I see that as not so much resistance to the New England values, but it was a, it was more of a, um, a local dispute between. Uh, you had, there had been, so basically like the way people thought of school back then was not, well, you had a right to go to whatever school you wanted. It was the point of going to a public school was to be part of the Republican American community. So the fact that if you wanted to have a different religious education that you had to pay more for it was kind of not really seen the same way it would be today, they were just seen as as, um, as different functions. And I don't think they saw their own school as a certain type of Protestantism. They realized it was Protestant influence, but there were so many different um, sects in the North um, that it was seen as this is what Republican government is. And there was a judgment in it that Catholics um, would have a problem, could have a problem dealing with that because um, of their, their religion with, you know, uh, obedience to the Pope. Did they understand self-government? Could they be trusted? That had been kind of an earlier discussion that had been relatively resolved and then it flared up again with the Blaine Amendments. Um, I think that was more the changes that were going on at the time and people um, and immigration. It was, it was like people taking out, I think, frustrations on various things and people being brought into the school system who had not been brought in before. And so you started to get um, clashes. And um, yeah, there was a lot of ugliness over that. It tended to be relatively isolated to certain regions and it did get a lot of pushback even from the, you know, a lot of people did not approve of the Blaine Amendments even within the, um, the Protestant power structure, the Yankee power structure. Um, it was it was complicated. Um, and you also had, a lot of it was also that Catholics were uh, allied with the Democratic Party, and so you had partisan uh, issues going on. There was just a, um, a lot a lot going on there that I think was a little bit different than the fact that um, the New England culture was dominant in general. Because um, even, I, I'm surprised, I'm from Boston and um, my family's Catholic. Um, in, within Boston, you when if you look back at what happened there like they really made a good effort to l let everybody know that catholics like really um they really loved emerson too like they would get letters from the from the bishop the senator the senator would do that and present it at meetings they really tried to be like well catholics can be part of this this same literary culture it's not um it's not different um so i guess there's just a difference between the religious culture and the educational political culture yeah. okay um uh, mentioned Catholics. Let's try. Uh, let's go uh, discuss another group uh, that seems to have at least had some resistance to 
how people were brought up in schools. Um, I believe it's called Trouble in Minds, the history of Jim Crow uh, in, 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 Amer in the American South. And it talks about how black students had a lot of trouble being force-fed uh, uh, textbooks that basically talked about the great glory of the Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and uh, so how, how exactly did teachers, did teachers take any account of the fact that for black Americans, very clearly, even uh, obviously even then, uh, didn't really uh, didn't really buy this triumphalist uh, historical approach. Um, I think it it depends on what era and and where this was being talked about. In general, um, and I've been looking into this. It's a little bit hard to untangle, but in general, um, the um, the African American culture, both before and after the war, to you know where people had access to education which is mostly in the North, but it started to spread into the South after the war, they tended to be um, amenable to the New England tradition um, because uh, obviously, you know, abolitionism, uh, that, that whole movement was, was saturated with it. Um, so it, it, they were fairly allied with it. After the Civil War, when you, when you were trying to expand the system, you got into debates over things like manual labor, you know, is is this the appropriate education um, to be to be having this useful? But there was always a push from the more um, educated or um, members of the African American community who had long been free. They were always pushing for something more like the New England tradition, um, a more literary education focused on citizenship. Um, there was a lot of resistance from them to uh, to have something more uh, practical or more um, uh, or less um, seen as culturally um, uh, sort of assimilating, you know, kind of um, imposing a model of one culture onto another. They they didn't really see it that way, um, and so there were there was there were divides within um, both the white and black community, northern, southern, educated and uneducated, on how to handle that. Um, but for the most part, you will. I, I still think that that most African Americans during that time were being educated in something that like the New England uh, tradition, um, especially because so many of the ones who were going to school at that time had parents um, or relatives or role models who were in the abolitionist movement um, and who had cultural ties to those circles. Um, so it was just that was it was complicated. It really you can see it in the struggles of. Um, you know, people like Booker T. Washington and others who were trying to figure out how do we balance these models, and they they it was, it was difficult. It was a difficult thing to to figure out um, and to plan for the future of how what was going to be the best way to handle some of these situations. Which brings us to the third group of Americans, uh, as you noted, uh, an increasing number of Americans were moving off the farm, uh, either from other countries or from the farm to the cities and uh, we're, become, we're becoming part of the manual or skilled working class. Did, how good a fit did this very university-inspired, very intellectual, uh, very middle-class culture kind of school work with an America which, whose economy may have been shifting but was still overwhelmingly an America that worked with its hands? Um, yeah, that was a very that was a big controversy. Is how do we deal with this shift? Um, and you kind of had two things going on. One was that particularly the education reformers um, were convinced that 
you needed to have agricultural specific training um, and that they should be that farmers should be um, formally educated to be farmers um, either because we needed farmers or because um, that they everything needed to professionalize and that was just the way it was going to be now um, and they were kind of angry when the farmers didn't find that useful um, because you could just learn on the farm and then the other thing was they noticed that farmers who did have a, an, a formal education tended to not want to go back to the farm and they tended to become professionals and there was this idea that okay that's that's a problem for in many cases or that it was just cultivating an like unnecessary disdain for for manual labor and um causing the talent to go elsewhere so there was there was a lot of debate over this and there's some pretty uh, shocking like newspaper articles from i don't know say the 1885 to 1910 where you just get people saying um our education system raises everybody to think that they could be a president um, and that's ridiculous. That's not how it is. They should be learning how to um, how to do practical things and get a job. And that said very casually, and you know, a lot of people might say, well, that, that, that makes sense. But it's shocking to read it compared to what you would have read in 1860 or something when, of course, you were going to tell every kid that they could be a president, uh, you know, or at least every, every, you know, white male child, that they could be a president. I mean, it, it, the idea that you wouldn't want to say that was was um would would very controversial um even if it was unlikely um but now it was just like what are we doing we should be having more technical um training for everyone so even though um people were moving to more professional roles there was almost like more of a there was more of an emphasis on um trade training vocational training um working with your hands or like doing things in a very technical way it totally lost that overall um the focus on rhetoric and oratory and leadership and um, knowing the classics and all that really just quickly, very quickly disappeared um, and became more for everybody, even those privileged groups. It was more about um, something very practical and um, uh, and technical. And so that that's almost was that caused a weird dynamic because you could almost blend a lot of these um, types of education into each other in the, in the discussion. Um, it didn't work the way in practice, but in theory, you could talk about everybody. And that's almost how they kept the Republican ideal together is they'd be like, well, yeah, like everybody just needs to be given this very specialized training to become their, their best and to become, um, uh, contributors to the society. And they talked about, um, a farmer, like he was, uh, a Harvard scientist and, or like a factory worker, or, um, you know, like a housewife. They were all the same because they all had tasks that they needed to learn how to do better, more efficiently, and in service of the community. Um, so it, it really did take a while to, I don't think anyone knew how to deal with that transition. And I think what they were ignoring, which was the bigger thing, was the transition from um, being self-sufficient to being an employee was the big was the big change. And that's what they couldn't get to work because it really did shift things so much that it was very hard to create education for the needs of employers that you didn't even know what jobs were gonna exist. And of course the unions weren't really cooperative with, with that. They wanted to keep the jobs for themselves and you could just learn on the job. So all these things were very different. And if you had your fear of dad at a farm or something, you could just learn from him. So. The, the model changed significantly towards employment and somebody like Dewey was very alert to the way this was changing things. But I think most of the reformers had trouble understanding that shift in dynamic. And I think the public almost didn't even 
follow a lot of what was going on in these these um, normal school debates in these universities. They were kind of obscure uh, debates. Okay. Um, I think it would be a good idea to finish off on uh, John Dewey, as you mentioned, because as you keep saying that uh, things changed significantly in the 1920s, and I know that Dewey lived into this decade and I think also beyond. What what changed uh, in the period after the period we're discussing, uh, and what role did Dewey play in that? Um, so, uh, part of it, World War One um, changed a lot. Um, it, it it made people well. It made the U.S. A, um, kind of like a global power in some sense, or started to think of it that way, and created that infrastructure. Um, it also um, there were a lot of there's a lot of instability that resulted from that. Um, you know, uh, there had been a lot of division. Um, all the propaganda had was something new, and and uh, people had, hadn't really seen that before. And you had mass media just rising at the same time. Like a lot of this wasn't necessarily specific to World War One, but it was that World War One um, revealed certain trends that were happening. And then you had that followed by uh, you know not that long after by the Great Depression and. Um, that really just called uh, called uh, called everything to question regarding the economy, um, but at the same time, a lot of this, the progressive era, central planning and science and all that that faith uh, just seemed to evaporate after that. It seemed, I mean, the confidence in the pro during the progressive era, particularly the uh, like the nineteen tens or the the uh, like from like nineteen oh five to nineteen fifteen, maybe. I mean, people just believed anything was possible at the, these reformer types, these experts. They really just thought they had everything figured out um, in a way that I think is difficult for us to see to, to imagine now. Um, it, it was much worse then because they just hadn't had they hadn't been discredited yet in any obvious sense, and it was all new and and everything seemed to be going well. And there were all these new discoveries, um, and so there was this kind of this there was just such certainty. And, and as you said before, they were just trying to do so much, but they really seemed to think that this was totally possible. Um, a lot of them. I think Dewey, someone like Dewey saw more of the, the issues involved, but they were caught off guard by by World War One, And it also, a lot of the resources after that went to other projects. And then after the Depression, there were not as many resources. Plus, they had built out the school system by the end of 1920 or something. So the, the momentum started to slow down. And a lot of their theories had not materialized. Um, so between all of that, you just kind of got an evaporation of that that certainty and everybody be, and all the reformers being on the same page. Um, they realized that it was going to be more complicated than that. Um, and then they were also turning more and more to the international scene. Someone like Dewey, he did shift significantly after um, World War I in, in some of his priorities, but his vision remained essentially the same the whole time, which was his vision of um, his philosophy of democratic education, which again was based on the idea that, okay, if we're going to have self-governing um, democratic community, you have to have people who are capable of doing that, meaning people who can make their own responsible decisions, who have democratic values, who want to self-govern, who respect their fellow citizens, and who are capable of keeping their heads on straight um, amid the changes that are happening and which are somewhat unpredictable uh, in modern life. And so he was um, trying very hard to get past some of the divisions of uh, World War One and the tendency towards towards conflict and um, and towards uh, expert management and towards um, kind of just getting ripped up into a frenzy by the centralized media and centralized power. And he was also trying to focus on creating a community 
um, that was that could have some sort of identity while also um, acknowledging differences, um, valuing those differences and learning to negotiate them. Um, he started to emphasize a lot, I think the term he used was compound complex. Um, he started to talk about how uh, the U.S., you know, it, it, it's the out of many one type idea that we wanted to have a, a unified identity, but it required having, recognizing that there were different like subcultures, I guess you would say, and not trying to force that into one, um, but learning to cooperate among them. And that became, I think, a lot of his, uh, his focus in the 1920s um, and, and in the 30s also. Okay, I think that provides us with an excellent uh, s uh, survey of the period and the thought involved in American education. And I hope to be able to uh, have you back on, uh, perhaps to discuss some of these things more in depth. Uh, Carrie, w uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you.